From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. I am really excited to have today's guest join us. In conversation with us is Dr. Moya Bailey. Moya is a critical race, feminist, and disability studies scholar and assistant professor of Africana Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Northeastern University. Currently, she is completing her tenure as the 2020-2021 MLK Visiting Professor at MIT in Women's and Gender Studies. Moya's scholarship focuses on marginalized groups' use of digital media to promote social justice as acts of self-affirmation and health promotion, and utilizes Black feminism as an important intervention to examine the ways race, gender, and sexuality are represented in media and medicine. Notably, she coined the term misogynoir in 2008 to describe a specific form of discrimination and anti-Black racist misogyny experienced by Black women, and then for popularizing the term in a 2010 critical essay entitled, They Aren't Talking About Me for the Crunk Feminist Collection. Moya co-authored the book, Hashtag Activism, Networks of Race and Gender Justice in 2020, and most recently, her forthcoming book, Misogynoir Transform, Black Women's Digital Resistance, will be published later this month through NYU Press. Looking forward to talking all the things with Moya. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, India. I'm so excited. Besides the fact that I cannot go anywhere, I can't watch or read anything with a critical <laughs> lens without thinking about or employing your term misogynoir very fluidly, as it is now very much a part of mainstream lexicon. And I'm sure you're probably like, whoa, so-and-so also used the term? I-, I can imagine how that must feel. Yeah, it's an interesting feeling, actually, um, if I if I may elaborate. You know, it's, a, it's one, exciting that people find the term useful, and then also really disheartening that it has to be used so much. I'm both excited and also troubled, if that makes any sense. A double-edged sword. Absolutely. I've been intrigued by your public scholarship for some time and the ways you, you examine into sectional issues of Blackness, gender and sexuality, queerness, ability and disability in a very accessible way. I'm eager to learn more about your journey and I'm sure my listeners are too. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. Moya, as a writer and public scholar, there are paths we take and processes we engage in to get us to where we are today. How did you become interested in doing the work you do? Oh, such a great question. I would say it started when I was young. I was a kid that had to go to the doctor a lot. And so I knew that I was going to be a medical doctor. I just knew it. But then I went to Spelman for undergrad. And at Spelman, I fell in love with women's studies. And that field just like woke something up in me. And what did it awaken? As a women's studies scholar that I started to think about how ideas and stereotypes about Black women circulate in medicine and then have an impact on how Black women are treated when they do go to the doctor. And while those are very large and robust but important issues to contend with when considering your own career trajectory. I was just trying to think about, huh, like if there is a way that representations actually inform societal treatment for Black women, we need a better way to talk about it. And so as I was writing my dissertation in grad school, that's what I was trying to get to with the term misogynoir. What is it about... Uh, how Black women are treated in medicine that is informed by the societal representations of Black women that are so damaging? And how does that transference happen? How do those representations actually then impact what happens in medicine or other societal institutions? It seems like during graduate school, and particularly while you were writing your dissertation, those were the moments in which you realized we need lexicon, we need frameworks to understand Black women's experiences. 
Was there another moment or experience at this time that informed your work? I was thinking about this as a grad student, but as you noted, writing for the Crunk Feminist Collective opened the word up to a much larger audience. And so it started traveling in spaces that I never anticipated. It became really important for me to take some time and theorize it outside of this medical context in which I was thinking about it, uh, because so many people could see its application in society writ large. And so it's been a really wonderful journey in that sense, because people do take up the term and find it helpful for the work that they're doing. So I'm going to peel back the onion a little bit. I like to think about how is it that people enter the spaces in which they enter. And you said that you were a person that acquired medical attention. And so your own personal story goaded you to want to pursue, if I'm not mistaken, a pre-med major. Yes. And our lived experiences helped to inform our scholarship and our ways of thinking and elucidating certain kinds of ideas and concepts. That's a significant shift from wanting to pursue medicine as a profession to academia. So what was it about being pre-med that really intrigued you? Or what was it about your own personal experience in the healthcare industry that said, I need to represent here? Yeah. So, and this is something that I think will come out a bit more in my next book project, just kind of building on this. So the next project is misogynoir in medicine. And it was kind of my experiences of misogynoir in medicine that kind of drove my interest. Okay. So in what ways? Was there a particular experience you had? One thing that happened that was really significant happened later when I was like in middle school or what we called it junior high. I had, you know, that once you start having your period, having to go to the gynecologist, and it was an experience with the gynecologist not believing me when I said that I wasn't sexually active. And it was a very dismissive sort of conversation. It was one where he really couldn't understand how I could be this Black girl who wasn't having sex and he thought I was lying. And, you know, I've told this story to a couple of different people and some physicians will say, well, teenagers lie. You can't actually assume that what you're telling us is the truth. Wow. And what'd you say to that? I was like, well, sure, but I could tell you that this was not the thing that was happening to my white friends who are going to the gynecologist. And this is something that we see over and over again is this adultification bias where like young Black girls are assumed to be more adult, more grown than they understand themselves to be. And that experience was like, oh, I want to go into medicine and I want to be the kind of doctor that I didn't have. I get it. Wanting to be the change you didn't see. That was my initial thought. And then I started to see that actually there are lots of things about the institution of medicine that make, you know, becoming an individual practitioner not enough. That's right. More than just position, it's also having influence. So I was like, well, what's happening at the level of medical education that is informing how doctors are trained and then treating patients? And then it's like you see all of these societal ills and the idea that, I don't know, somehow medicine is immune to that uh, needs to be questioned. I see. And you've carried this experience not only in your undergraduate experience, but also your graduate studies too. And so that was something that happened while I was at Spelman. I was getting just a sense that, oh, this is a much bigger issue than just individual interactions between a doctor and a patient. This is about how society views Black women as a whole. And I wanted to explore that more. And that's why I decided to get a PhD instead of go into medical school. What's interesting too about your retelling is power of language because we didn't necessarily have the language at the time to Mm -hmm. call it by name what we were experiencing in terms of the adultification of Black girls, even as early as five years old. Well, yeah. And sometimes even earlier than five. I mean, there have been studies about like little Black girls in daycare, this assumption about who they are and little Black boys too, that they need to be held less. All of that just create such a burden on children impacts them for the rest of their lives. Right. And so with that impact and those experiences, we can all identify we've witnessed it happening to other people and and how young Black males and females are treated. But you didn't have the language to call it, right? We didn't have the, you And so I think it's one of those really important things too, that to coincide when we have our own individual and personal experiences, and it coincides with when we're exposed to additional and new ways 
of thinking, which I think probably has helped when you were beginning to be exposed and entrenched at Spelman, an all-female HBCU. So you're surrounded by women scholars that look like you, that may or may not have similar experiences, but there's a certain kind of community that happens and they're telling you, oh, you should read this. Here's a deeper dive. Here's language in which others have used to describe something that's so um, universal to a certain extent around our gender and our race. And Mm -hmm. then go to you to coin your own term because it wasn't enough. Yeah. And I would say it's also like in a lineage because I see that misogynoir is an extension of conversations about intersectionality. It's an extension of the famed speech that uh, Sojourner Truth probably never gave, Ain't I a Woman? You know, it's, it's an extension of that idea that Black women don't deserve the same level of respect or space that is given to other women. And that there too demonstrates the importance of the power of language and what language can do, particularly for marginalized voices. It's a way of calling things out accurately and clearly. And so that definitely is part of it. Like I see misogynoir just giving us like new ways to talk about things we already knew about and hopefully extending and expanding a conversation. By my account, your public lectures and books carry a particular theme, just as what you just mentioned around misogynoir, one that examines an issue of representation as it relates to African descended personhood. So Black feminism, queer genders, persons with disabilities, and the way we must name, claim, and amplify, right? So that's the whole naming, the language importance part around Black women's agency to be able to subvert negative stereotypes and narratives through, I think in your work, you call it repurposing of existing digital platforms for social justice. But if you were to think back to your childhood, what or who motivated you to amplify these types of stories, these narratives? Well, so I grew up in a predominantly white town in the South, a little place called Fayetteville, Arkansas. All my people, my parents are from just outside Birmingham, Alabama, in a little place called Fairfield. And so that experience, spending my summers there and like being around Black people and feeling just a sense of home. Oh, that's very interesting. So what do you mean by home? Whenever I traveled there made me think about just the different Americas that are existing simultaneously. Like the world that I existed in during the summer was so different from the world I existed in during the rest of the year. I get it. The experience of straddling two worlds, two spaces. And how do you think those experiences help you in your framing and understanding about social life. For me, those experiences really informed my sense that Black women's experiences, the experiences of Black gender expansive folk needed to have its own language and needed space to breathe and have a conversation uh, with people who sometimes wouldn't necessarily think to engage those people. So I feel like my work is always speaking to those who are pushed to the margins and, you know, in that very bell hooks sense, like bringing the margin to center. Interesting. And would you say that this is also the theme of the book? Yeah, is a theme of the book and a theme of my writing, just wanting to move our lens to focus on the people who don't get focused on enough. What were some of the topics or conversations you think that people either were avoiding that you thought, why are people doing this? or conversations that you were witnessing or kind of hearing a little bit about where it's just like, I wish we had more of these? Great question. So one of the, one of the gifts and curse, curses of a small liberal arts college like Spelman is that there becomes, even with all of the diversity that is on that campus, there can be a bit of a, there's a right way to be a Spelman woman. And even that idea that there are only Spelman women creates a little bit of a narrow understanding of who the population at the school, at the institution is. So we've been talking about Spelman now as a historically women's college because we have a lot of students now who don't necessarily identify as women are going through their own gender journey 
which has brought them to Spelman, but that might not be their whole story. And we have wonderful research with among, you know, Black feminist scholars about the importance of Black women in history. But the question of those folks at the margins who are also doing really important work sometimes drops out. Indeed. And this really goes back to the point that you were making earlier around intersectionality and the fact that even within this community of being students at a historically Black women's college, that you can have people with various experiences too. I started thinking about this when I read some Black feminist theorists, and they might talk about Audre Lorde, but sometimes they might not talk about her being queer. Or if I read something about Paula Murray, not necessarily considering her own gender queerness and how she understood herself. There's just these stories that don't get talked about enough. And so how do you contend with this in your current project? So in Misogynoir Transformed, one of the things I try to do is center queer, trans, agender, non-binary folks who are still, I think, part of this umbrella and connected to Black women. Like Black women are definitely part of how some of those people may have identified or be identified by others, even though that might not be how they understand themselves. And so when it comes to these topics, how are you framing these conversations for folks? We have so many wonderful, rich understandings of gender within our community that get collapsed if we're not paying attention. Hopefully this book is giving a little bit of an opening into that and an opening into our understandings of sexuality as well. And how would you say these conversations that are currently happening in the discourse that you're engaged in occurring in places that you grew up and spent a lot of time family-wise? Because we can say what we can say living here in the Northeast, but the Northeast is very different from being down in Alabama or Arkansas or even in Georgia. Yes. So as a Southerner, I love being from the South and I love Southern sensibilities. And there is this way that in the South, it gets painted as more culturally repressed, more conservative than other places. And of course, that's true in some ways. And then it's not true in many other ways. So can you elaborate a little bit for us? So what I'm thinking about is that there are all of these people who in my life, even as a young person, I can look back and say, oh, that person was probably queer or that person's gender does not fit these perceptions. And that person was integrated in the community, but the there might have been some limits about how they could move. As long as we don't talk about it, as long as it's not a conversation, then you can move and do as you will. So I think that there are clearly some, you know, stark differences between Northern and Southern sensibilities. And I don't think it means that the South is more homophobic or transphobic than other places. And so fundamentally, it comes down to people taking up space in many of these places or then creating spaces for themselves to exist. Yeah, it's one thing to, you know, have this language now. But as I said, looking back, I can see that those conversations were just beneath the surface. They were always there. But that's where respectability politics plays a role, right? In the sense that then people feel the need to conform or not to conform. It's the case that people struggle sometimes with this idea that if you just conform socially that it will create more opportunities or create the kind of respectability that will get you the place that you want in society. And more and more, I think people are realizing in this moment that that's not the case. And so there's a real move within Black studies and, you know, even in the conversation we had last year with the panel. Yes, the panel we did called Sarah Bartman, Nicki Minaj, Beyonce and the Booty, Black Womanhood, Sexuality and Beauty in Pop Culture. We hosted that at Northeastern University's African-American Institute. Yeah, talking about how, you know, respectability doesn't necessarily get us closer to the things that we want, even though I think some of us operate out of that and that sort of protectionism. And so what do you mean by imperfectionism? Something I've talked about a lot with other queer trans folks within the Black community or Black communities is the sense that a lot of the homophobic and transphobic violence that people experience 
can come from people wanting to, quote unquote, protect us. So like parents and adults and other people trying to police gender and sexuality, make people conform because there's an understanding that violence will come from somewhere else if those behaviors are displayed. But then in the process, being the actual enactors of violence. Absolutely. So complicated. I feel like it's complicated and having nuanced more nuanced conversations in accessible ways and accessible places gives us an opportunity to shift those patterns and perhaps create new ones. You know, even for me as a parent, you enter into a space where it's just like, I will die for these people. But understanding that, like, even in my own personal case of raising two children, Black children, going out into the world that I have to worry about racism. I have to worry about other kinds of violence and assault, sexual assault, all these other things for both my male and female child, right? Because it can happen. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you bringing the issue around sometimes those who are closest to us that feel that they are to be our protector or sometimes are the, the ones who are inflicting trauma and harm and fears. But how much of the other kinds of isms are we reifying Absolutely. Right, within that protection? Yes, I just, I just taught to my students this semester, The Street by Anne Petrie. And I feel like that book is the perfect example of this, of this protection, of trying to protect a child in this way that ultimately causes harm. And so Ludi Johnson is like trying to figure out how to protect her son Bub. And in the process, Bub has to become so constricted and so confined in his experiences. It just, to me, is, I mean, it's the story of Black parenting, how you think that the best way to protect them is to create this like small, small container, but that that can suffocate. The inadvertent action of trying to place parameters of protection in effect closet our children. And in many ways, these closets, these confines efficiently allow for violence to flourish in our blind spots. Yes, yes. I think in many ways, sometimes it, by doing that, it helps to block joy because you're just so heightened all the time from fear that doesn't allow individuals to experience the joy and the beauty that does exist simultaneous to all of the hot mess that's out in the world. Absolutely. And even thinking about the closet, you know, something that a lot of Black queer men talk about is that, you know, there was no closet for them in terms of how their mannerisms and their bodies, their voices gave them away as children. And so people already marking them as queer before they even really had a sense to know what that meant. And so definitely how the outside plays on your understandings of yourself. And so that's also what I'm trying to do in the book when talking about misogynoir is to show the way misogynoir operates is it decides, oh, we see you as a Black woman. And so we're going to ascribe all of these ideas onto your body, onto your presentation, whether or not you consent to that. Absolutely. And so I think that's a a lovely segue into just this reminder about the fact that you'd written, I guess, an essay that was published on Black Youth Project called It's an Open Letter to Nelly. And that's around <laughs> the controversy of him wanting to come to Spelman's campus to do like charity concert to promote what bone marrow donations, I believe, and perform his song Tip Drill. There was a lot of controversy around it. And of course, particularly that scene where he takes the credit card and swipes it through the woman's derriere. Yeah, it's just that that gaze. And then when that gaze is not just the white gaze, but the gaze is also a gaze that your own people employ too. Misogynoir, there we go. Absolutely, India. I mean, in the book, I do talk about what happened with Nellie and that's the preface that kind of gets the book started. Is that experience also really shaped my decision to go to grad school because this question of representation just wouldn't let go of me. And I I didn't see how I could address that within medical school as medical school is constructed. That got me on this path of thinking too about, you know, what happens when the call is coming from inside the house, you know, misogynoir that happens that is internalized by Black people and by Black women and how that impacts our experiences and the kind of media that people can create. So I talk a bit about examples of misogynoir, but 
both um, some police violence that's occurred, but also some representational violence. Is there a more recent example that you can give our listeners? Yeah. So I was thinking, actually, because the Oscars occurred, you know, recently, and one of the people honored was Tyler Perry. And I feel like Tyler Perry, I said this in another article that, you know, he really built his career through massage noir and the way that he represents Black women, uh, but now is being awarded and lauded as a humanitarian for giving back to these communities that he has traditionally disparaged. And so I feel similarly about Nelly. You know, how is it that at the time I couldn't quite put it all together, but in hindsight, it's like, yeah, you want Black women to support bone marrow registration, but the reason you have a platform is because of the way you represent Black women and to not be willing to have a conversation with some college students who were, I have to say, we were pretty uh, tame at the time. We were like, we'll write him a letter. Hopefully he'll come and talk to us about our concerns. We were so earnest and that was not really appreciated. And unfortunately, that's often the case, right? And what would you say is your hope now that you're able to reflect on the Nelly situation and then think about it with regards to the book Massage Noir? I do hope and think that there have to be more conversations that get at the complexity of all of this. Yeah, it's a great thing to want to get Black people to register to donate bone marrow. But at the same time, you know, we have to be willing to to talk about the hard parts of people too, that they're not separate from one another. Like his platform is possible because of these representations. Tyler Perry's ability to be a humanitarian is built off of the misogynoir of the images he creates. And I think it's related to the panel that we had done together a year ago when we were looking at Black women and, and sexuality. And, and I know the conversation took us to a place where it was an interesting juxtaposition between the representation that even, say, music artists like Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion, where we want voice, we want representation. But it's always, to me, it seems like this fine line of we want empowerment, we want a display of it to say, if men can do it, you know, we should be able to have the freedom to express ourselves equally in however way we choose. But but then also the contradiction and conflict of, well, we're also reifying the same kinds of images that we're pushing up against also. So, you know, just the same way as we can call out Tyler Perry in the sense that he is totally evoking so many negative tropes about Black women, families, Black men, all of these different things. But then now he's able to use the platform to say, well, I have one of the largest studios. It's primarily employing Black and Brown folks and people of color, employing the people in the community that that it sits in, there's all these do goods. But then it's this contradiction where it's just like, at what price are we then paying for the reification of these kinds of images, even though we know that you have select people who are saying, well, I am still giving back. That's exactly my question. And I think it's a false dichotomy that says that these are two separate conversations with the third two different different things that for me, when I think of someone like Megan Thee Stallion or Cardi, yes, there is that sense of empowerment that's part of the message. And also it is reifying tropes at the same time. I don't think that we do ourselves any good by assuming that there can be this clear break between the two. I think we have to wrestle with the fact that it is both and always. And that's one of the beauties of my women's studies education is that it's always both and that simultaneously Megan and others might be empowered by these images at the same time that they reinforce some of these stereotypes about who Black women are. Really having, you know, helping people understand that those two things can happen and exist at the same time is important. But I think the question becomes, why is it that these are the only representations that we get to see 
why are they the ones that are most successful? And not to say that Megan doesn't have bars. Megan clearly knows what she's doing. But, you know, I think about someone like Tierra Wack, who I absolutely adore, but does not have the same platform, not have the same visibility as Megan. Yeah. And I'm sure that the same thing goes for queer rappers as well. Yeah. Queer rappers and singers who perhaps don't also have that sort of privilege unless they are able to traffic in the same kinds of representations or that like cis heterosexual people do. Yeah, like artists, young MA. So in the book, I talk specifically about young MA as somebody who very much moves in a representation that's aligned with all of the toxic masculinity that we see from cis heterosexual men. So young MA, yes, she is a lesbian, but that doesn't change or make the images that she's producing any less toxic, right? So there's, again, that both and. Wonderful to see lesbian representation in popular culture, but if the only representation that we're going to get reifies the same kind of dismissive treatment of more feminine people, then I think you can keep it. Like, it doesn't actually get us closer to the world we want. Absolutely. And it just seems like, for me as a consumer of all of these kinds of images, sometimes (laughs) not by choice, that you're consuming some of this stuff and how it bleeds out in other ways in our daily lives. It just seems like at some point, because it's money-making, it makes it even harder to say, well, let's reject. Why don't we create other kinds of images and representation? I think you you really you know, hit the nail on the head with that, because I do think capitalism is a driver of so much of what we see. And if it sells, people are willing to sacrifice a lot to to win financially. Like there's a way that having access to capital, using capital motivates a lot of these negative representations. And one of the things I found when doing my research, one of the things I try to highlight in the book are the passion projects that people create with very little money that challenge misogynoir because people are doing it out of love. They're not trying to make a profit. They have an idea that they want to see out in the world and they're really motivated. And then, of course, that raises questions who is in the position to do something for free or for like less money. The gift of these platforms is that you don't have to pay to use Twitter or YouTube or Tumblr. However, you know, with these questions of how these platforms are actively trying to figure out how to monetize themselves, I think we're going to miss out on some of the rich content that we're there. the road. Moya, you and I share a lot of things in common, but definitely a love for music and really good food. And (laughs) in fact, I've heard your mac and cheese rivals many and that you can also throw down on some fried catfish. So I'm hearing a dinner invitation in the future. (laughs) Aside from that, how does Moya play? Oh, great question. I mean, I definitely, I mean, food is definitely at the top of that list. So in addition to loving to throw down, I love good food. I will travel for some good food. A friend asked me, like, how far would you travel to like get some good food? I'm like, how far are we going? Like I'm from the South. As I said before, we drive. So <laughs> so you will get in your car and drive for the goodness. I am not above, you know, getting in the car and going going to where the good food is, that brings me so much joy. Eating good food, eating good food with good people, it really lifts my spirit and makes me so excited. And I love to dance. Like I love opportunities to be out and about with people. I'd say the saddest part about the pandemic is that the New Year's of 2020, I had a big New Year's party. Like I had friends like come over and we were dancing. Dancing, and we were so into it. I didn't take any pictures. And who knew that was going to be the last time that I saw people like that. So I am definitely somebody who loves to be in community with people and around a table or on a dance floor are my favorite ways to play. I love that. I hear dinner invitation, a dance off. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Or I'm maybe ready. some sort of karaoke or something. I can't sing, but yes. it's all about 90s R&B. And- Always, all the time. And, you know, um, hopefully, I'm not a skater, but I have a mentee who is a graduate student at MIT who is, you know, just vicious on some four-wheel skates. And so I'm trying to get back into my into my skating, which was like my thing when I was a kid. There's a place out here, Shevu, Black-owned and has been, you know, trying to make it through the pandemic. And when they open up again, I think I think a Shevu trip might might be the thing as well. Oh, I'm, I'm down with that. You've also talked about the importance of community. And I think of it in a way that it's an interesting juxtaposition between desiring to be in community, like having your own Mati, while also maintaining boundaries as a public scholar and an academic. So how how do you contend with this praxis of the lived experience and then the associated, call it a tax of vulnerability, marginalization, and misogynoir that can occur while you're traversing public spaces? Yes. It's interesting because I started out having a public Twitter account as a graduate student. And that public account was like I was talking to everybody. It was like my own place. It was before academics really got on Twitter and it was like a playground for me. And I would say that was true of also my early use of Tumblr. But then, you know, academics as we do, we like to go and adapt the latest or not the latest, but maybe, you know, that in that second or third wave of getting onto a platform. And so then I saw colleagues and professors who were using it. Right. Because that also means that you have a lot more people, particularly colleagues, people that you work with are in professional spaces with looking to what you have to say and what you're thinking and what you're doing both personally and professionally. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, I got to lock this down. And so I, you know, closed the door on my And then it became even more clear that now we're going to be using these platforms for professionalization. So then it's, I have to open my account again, but it's definitely changed the kinds of conversations that I've had, which isn't to say that I don't still, you know, talk about non-academic things or frivolous things, but I would say the kinds of inter-community conversations that were possible before I'm less likely to participate in. And that's the thing about social media. There is a performative aspect around how we show up in these spaces and how we identify and assert our multiplicity of identities. Yeah. And this is, you know, the gift and curse of social media. It creates a little bit of intimacy or a false sense of intimacy. And in some ways, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, friends and I have been talking about all of the Black secrets that are being shared on these platforms. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like the things that we all talk about and contend with at the family cookout, right? Like dances and just how things have evolved and changed so quickly in this era where information spreads so fast. Give us an example. Just thinking about the moment that Michelle and Barack do their fist bump and initially the media says, what is that? A terrorist fist jab. You know, like that really happened. And that was not that long ago. Whereas now, you know, the children come out with a TikTok and then it's been co-opted and changed and by a white dancer who gets more credit or more acclaim for it just in a matter of hours, not even days. So I am, again, both, well, all always conflicted about uh, what these platforms provide and also want to think through what they take away. And I get it being one, you have a certain level of boldness and anonymity that people feel and, and practice and assert in these digital public spaces where they feel like, oh, now I could just tell you anything. And because it's a public space, then it's a free for all. But then interestingly enough, then there's a lot of self-censorship, even in your retelling, you then now have to be like, okay, my front presenting self has to be, you know, Dr. Moya Bailey as professor, as activist, as public scholar. And although you might see glimmers of who Moya is, this is all that we get. Mm -hmm. But then it's hard to then really have community with folks because there's a certain level of vulnerability that you have to experience and and relinquish too in order to connect with other peoples. Absolutely. And I would say too that some of the platforms are less likely to lend itself to that sort of 
of vulnerability. Like, I do think that the vulnerability that was possible on Twitter when I first joined is not possible now. Just because of the size and the way that it has been or the way that it has become a platform for uh, not just celebrities, but corporations and brands, it is not the same Twitter of, you know, just five years ago. And in this moment of digital media, I do think we have to consider what is it having a sacrifice and what is difficult for us to replicate in digital spaces. And why do you think that's even significant more so today? Especially now where there's an expectation that people respond and move incredibly quickly. Give us an example. So I am always considering the fact that one of the things we perhaps lose in this digital connectedness is some of the vulnerability and intimacy that's possible with shared space in IRL. In IRL, in real life, for folks that may not know. You know, like if we could be together in more authentic ways offline, I think that could translate into the things that happen online and vice versa. And I definitely think that's possible. That's that's one of the things I argue in the book. So then it relies on us to then find more creative ways to then deepen our connections and building our communities with other others. Absolutely. So it allows you to, okay, wow, I connected with this person who's in Germany, in London, and South Africa, then offline or in IRL in real life somehow deepen those connections so that it's more fruitful so that we can have our matis and we can be fluid and we can have all of those things. Yes. And I'll add there that, you know, one of the beauties of those early Tumblr friendships, relationships and connections were these stories of people who had been talking on Tumblr for years and then flew across the country to meet each other for the first time. Like, I do think it is possible to do on social media I just think that it's harder now. The changes to the platforms also restrict what is possible in this current moment. Your book, Hashtag Activism, that you co-wrote with Sarah Jackson and Brooke Foucault-Wells, and then your forthcoming book, Misogynoir Transformed, speaks to the significance of gatekeeping narratives. And then the role of counterpublics, the role counterpublics play on digital platforms, particularly around the ways hashtag activism elucidate misogyny noir, injustice, and oppression. So um, most people are familiar, but you also talk about this in both the books in terms of the mainstream success of hashtags Black Lives Matter, Me Too, Say Her Name, and Girls Like Us. In your opinion, what does the future of hashtag culture and hashtag activism look like when it comes to both Black and Black trans women's health practice? And then my part two, when it comes to the utility of true digital digital allyship as opposed to appeasing the anxiety of a guilty conscience. Mm. And I'm really thinking about that in terms of one of the latter chapters in in hashtag activism, Mm -hmm. where that contributor reflects on his own take around allyship. For me as a reader thinking, all right, so how much of this is about guiltiness? (laughs) Yes. So One, I think that we are incredibly scrappy and tenacious as human beings. I think even as these platforms clamp down and tamp down on what we have been doing, that we will always find a way. And if it's not Twitter anymore, it might be TikTok. And if it's not TikTok anymore, you know, I do think that we will make a way because we always do. So I'm not too concerned about the future in that regard, but I am concerned if we are not investing in learning some of these digital platforms ourselves or having the skills to build them. Oh, yes. I like that. Elaborate a bit more. Because I do think that there might come a time where the cost to play is not surmountable by the people who need to get over that hump. Indeed, because the digital divide is real. So I am 
always thinking through how are we leveraging our resources to ensure that we have the opportunity to get the things we need out of these digital platforms and also perhaps create what we need ourselves if, if it comes to that. Indeed. And it's the same mantra of FUBU, for us, by us. Now, what would you say about the question around allyship and the guilty conscience? When I think about allyship and guilt, that is the question. Are you really wanting to be an accomplice, which is the language I really like to use? Are you willing to follow the people who are directly impacted and understand what it is that you might be called to do, as opposed to requiring them to do the labor of absolving you of your guilty feelings. That's that's not what we're here for. And that is not allyship. That is not being an accomplice. What are some of the ways folks can become effective accomplices? One thing that needs to happen, and I am starting to see more of this, is people doing their own work and like starting reading groups and opportunities to invest and go deeper with some of their own questions. Uh, but people have to be willing to, to take that journey and not everybody is. And that's all right too. I mean, I'm definitely of the position, which is advice that I got as an undergraduate at Spelman College from uh, my professor, Imbahati Kaumba. Shout out to Dr. K, uh, who told us that, you know, as young, fledgling, you know, college campus activists who really wanted everyone to be down. We wanted, you know, we wanted to have a thousand people at the meeting and we wanted, you know, all of campus to understand that, you know, this is a terrible way to represent women, especially at a a college like Spelman. And something she told us, she said, you're not going to get everyone, but you doing your work and you having fun and being invested in what you're doing, that's what's going to pull people to you. It's always been small groups of people that have made the biggest changes. Even if we are few in number, that we can still have, you know, a huge level of impact. I love that. That's so inspiring. Even just advice, just thinking yeah. about the the ripples that we can make. Yeah. I think it's one thing to talk about being an ally or being an accomplice when you are of a different group. But then what does that look like when it comes to being an accomplice or an ally when it's within your own racial or gender or class group? I always think about that quote that gets attributed to Zora Neale Hurston. But of course, you know, everybody has somebody in your family who said not all skin folk are kin folk. And I hold on to that because one, I don't think we should assume that because we have shared identities that we will have an affinity for one another. Explain a little bit for folks out there. So one of the things I talk about in the book, particularly this chapter on Girls Like Us, is this interesting thing that came up in the data when looking at the hashtag. That there is a conservative trans woman named Cami who also tweeted a lot using the Girls Like Us hashtag. But because Cami wanted to talk about the NRA and guns and Cami was anti-abortion, Cami had all of these ideas that were very much divergent from the majority of the trans women who were using the hashtag. For those interested in learning more about that data, like how you were able to identify Cami, can you explain a little bit about what was the software you used to find her and her use of the hashtag? In using this software tool called Gephi, you can see like this node where Cami is in one quadrant and then like everyone else is over here. And so you would think that there would be this affinity or that there would be this connection because Cammy's a trans woman as well, but they did not have the same values. They did not have the same political stance. And we can see this happening contemporarily with Caitlyn Jenner running for governor. Right. And the irony behind Caitlyn Jenner attempting to put her hat in the arena for gubernatorial candidate is that she's vying for the attention of a political machine that has historically not only marginalized 
trans folk, but other marginalized groups as well. Yeah, trans and queer people are like, absolutely not. No, we are not just going to elect Caitlyn Jenner as governor based on identity alone because Caitlyn's politics are absolutely horrible. And so what do you recommend that folks do, particularly people who are listening? We have to find our accomplices where we find them and they might not be the people we imagined they would be. We, we can't assume a connection based on identity. And that is something that I think people also misunderstand about the way identity politics gets deployed. Absolutely. And that reminds me of R.G. Lord Zami, as well as the Kambahi River Collective, in terms of how these works spoke to identity politics. As Kambahi River Collective statement and other Black feminists, women of color feminists have described, identity politics is really, there's an opportunity there. There's an assumption that because you have the situational knowledge of a particular standpoint based on how you have experienced racism, sexism, homophobia, or transphobia, that you have the potential to have a perspective that people who are in the more dominant group do not. But that potential isn't always achieved. So I think we have to really reckon with the fact that identity alone will not be the thing that saves us. So, you know, I have to be all solutions oriented. So what sort of frameworks or perspective do we need to help break people's false consciousness? Is it Afrofuturism, another sort of framework? What do you think? Octavia really opens up our thinking about this because uh, in her book, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, you see people who are working together who have lots of differences, but they're coming together for survival and are accomplices to one another, not because of a shared identity, but for an affinity to survive. And for some of them, an affinity around these principles and values that uh, the protagonist shares with them that emerged from her thinking and observations in the world. So I definitely think that we are going to see more opportunities for affinity over identity uh, coming up in our communities and our connections. Act three, where we land. So here we are, Moya, we're at the point in the show where I ask all of my guests to describe their latest projects. And if there are any parting words or takeaways that may help to inspire the audience in their journeys of belonging to Blackness. So one, you can pick up your copy of Noir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. May 25th is when it goes live, but of course you can pre-order at any time. I highly recommend ordering from your favorite independent bookstore or mine, which is Karis Books and More in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can find me at Transform Noir on Instagram and on Twitter at MoyaZV. That's M-O-Y A-Z-B. And yeah, next I'll be doing some talks, uh, one at Karis virtually May 28th, which is a Friday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. And I'll be talking with my colleague, Catherine Knight-Steele, about the book in relationship to questions of Black women's digital transformation online. This is awesome, Moya. Thank you again, India, so much for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you, and I really hope that people pick up the book and find it useful. I'm sure they will, and thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you. Thank you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.